think it'll be worthwhile. There's a lot of questions, a lot of confusion about angels, and so he's going to spend some time on that. Second thing is on the back of your bulletin, especially in the bolded area, I want to let you know about our services this week, Passion Week. We have Monday, Thursday service at 6 p.m. on Thursday. That is actually the evening that we're talking about in the scriptures today when Jesus spent time with his disciples for the Passover dinner. It was on Thursday. And then on Friday night, we have Good uh, Friday service as well. Both of them are at 6 p.m. here at the church. I'd like to invite you to come to those. It'll be an enjoyable time. Uh, I think also a reflective time, a time when you might learn some things. Uh, more about what happened during this week. Okay, this is the sixth Sunday of Lent, Palm Sunday. Hopefully you have enjoyed the journey through the last several weeks as we get closer to the cross. Next Sunday is Easter. We are moving toward the cross, and along the way, we're, we're trying to learn about Jesus as he moves closer to the cross. So we've been looking at the I Am statements in John. And um, as we move closer to the cross, you'll notice that the I Am statements become more personal. They become, uh, in the beginning, he's talking to everybody out in the temple, and towards the end, he has two more. We're going to cover one now and one in Good Friday, Friday evening. Uh, now he's alone with his disciples when he talks. So this is called Palm Sunday. It's also known as Passion Week because it's the beginning of Passion Week. It's Jesus' last week before the crucifixion. Um, today, we celebrate his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is the beginning of Passion Week. Now, the question we have that we're going to have to address in a minute is, what happened where they praised him and they laid the palm branches down and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then by the end of the week, they kill him. It's a big turnaround, isn't it? To go from uh, Mr. Popularity to zero. I mean, that's... That's a big turnaround. So what happened? Well, let me remind you, this day right here is just after the Feast of Tabernacles and the raising of Lazarus. We've spent that over the last several weeks. During the Feast of Tabernacles, he had the three I Am statements where he's in the temple. Then he had the raising of Lazarus where he said, I am the uh, resurrection and the life. So this is just after this. The palm branches symbolized uh, goodness. They symbolized victory. It was very common in the ancient world to use palm branches for this. Solomon had palm branches carved into the walls and the doors of the temple. In 1 Kings 6, at the when the temple was built, he had palm branches carved, carved into it because they symbolized goodness and victory. We find them now depicted on coins and important buildings. When you get to the end of the scripture in Revelation 7, you will see that palm branches again appear. Very, I think most of you have probably heard this verse at least the first half of it. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. By the way, one of the fun things I do in class is I ask the students, when you make it to the eternal state, to the uh, new earth, what color are you going to be? It's amazing how they kind of stop and scratch their heads and think about what language you're going to speak. Well, listen to this. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Christianity is alone in the world in that you are made in the image of God, and you get to be you for all of eternity. I just love that. So whatever your language is now, that's what you're going to speak. I hope to learn more 
and eternity. They're standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So this idea of palm branches is woven throughout Jewish history. It symbolized goodness and victory. In John 13, uh, in fact, let's read John 12 first. You heard part of it just a minute ago. John 12, verse 12. The next day the great crowd that, that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. In the other Gospels, it says some were waving them like we were doing, and some were laying it down for the donkey to walk on. And they're shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. I love these little editorial comments all throughout the Gospels because they, they bring me into the story. At first, they didn't understand it. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So they're, they're in the crowd. They're experiencing the, the celebration. When we walked in, did you feel the energy? Those of you that were here waving the fronds and the kids were up here waving the palms around and the singing and the confusion and the energy. You could just picture this scene. Jesus going into Jerusalem and they're trying to make sense of all this. So they go into Jerusalem and then they go into the upper room which is where we're going to pick up the story with Jesus. But first, just a short little insight. What caused them to turn so quickly against this Messiah? This idea of Hosanna, which they're shouting, it became an exclamation of praise. But really what it meant at this time was save or rescue us now. So their picture of the Messiah was they were an oppressed, occupied people, they were, the Romans had occupied their lands and the Roman military had control of them. We don't know what that's like. We've never been occupied by a foreign nation, have we? So we don't know what that would be like. And so as they read the, uh, the prophets and developed their sense of hope, they were looking for this Messiah that would come and break this Roman oppression. So they're honoring him as king right now because of all the miracles that had been done. If you look at the surrounding story here, Verse 17, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. So they had seen him do these incredible miracles, including raising somebody that had been dead for several days now. So it makes sense that we would want him to be our king. Well, what a surprise when he decides rather than break Roman oppression, he offers himself up as a sacrifice. No wonder they turned against him. You're not our king. Our king is going to come rescue us, and that's not what you're doing. So by the end of the week, the crowds are now opposed to him because they basically said, we were wrong about you. We were mistaken. So then in John 13, he's now in the room with his disciples, having supper with them. So this is a much more private time of teaching. These are his last words, John 13, 14, 15, before he is led to the crucifixion, to the trials and crucified. So this is his last evening. I believe, with the disciples now. So what he says in this final little bit of the journey is very important. He's getting ready to prepare them for what's coming next. And the place that he starts is with washing the disciples' feet. That's where he begins. He doesn't say anything. He just puts on a towel and gets a thing of water and starts washing their feet. And then as he washes their feet, he begins to explain to them what he's talking about and what he's modeling. He's teaching them about servanthood. 
which is the very thing he's about to demonstrate by going to the cross. He's willing to make himself a slave or a servant to those around him and pay whatever price needs to be paid. So he teaches them about servanthood by washing their feet. He concludes this whole section on servanthood with a new command. Many of you know these commands. Verse 34 of chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another. It's not really a new command. We find it spread throughout the Old Testament. Uh, It may be new to the disciples because he's highlighting it. He's taking this Mosaic law and he's reducing all these commands down to a simple idea. A simple idea. A new command I give you, love one another. It's very simple. The entire Christian message can be summed up with love one another. Love one another. As I have loved you, and he had just washed their feet, and he had spent three years with them, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It doesn't say you'll know my disciples if you go to church, although that's very important. It doesn't say they will know that you're my disciples if you give a lot. That's important. It doesn't say they'll know you're my disciples if you come together and worship. That's important. If you do your quiet times every day, you read your Bible, you pray, whatever, you can go on and on and on. No, what he says is, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciple by the way you demonstrate love. That's why the way we live out our faith is critical. Because that is what the world will see. They don't care about you going to church. They don't care if you read your Bible. Those things don't mean anything to them. We'll get into this in just a minute. Why don't they? They don't. They haven't yet found the way. But what they do understand is love. The one thing we have in common with all of our friends is brokenness and suffering and trials, hard times, isn't it? Challenges in life. That's the language the world gets. They understand it. So in the midst of a broken world where we are sharing in that suffering, trials, hard times, many of you are going through hard times. Your your neighbors can connect with that. Your friends who don't know Jesus yet can connect with that. In the midst of that darkness, if they see love, that becomes one of the guiding lights to the way. We're going to talk about Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, in just a second. That's where we're headed. So he concludes with his command to love one another, but he tells them, right in the middle of this, that he's going away. Verse 33, my children, I will be with you only for a little longer. You will look for me just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. All right, he's right at the end. He just got celebrated as a king who's going to rule the, who's going to, they think, the Jewish people think he's going to rule them well and break this Roman oppression. And he tells the disciples, it's not going to happen. I'm going away and you can't come. Verse 36, he says it again. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. So can you picture the, the unrest that he's creating here by telling them, I'm actually leaving? You can't follow. He rattles their cage. So in John 14, he goes one step further and he says, however, I want you to have some sense of comfort. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, John 14. Trust also in me. My father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, 
Would I have told you that I am going away there, going to another place to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also be, may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. You know the way to the place where I'm going. He uses language here, I believe, that they would have understood. This is, I believe, coming right out of the Jewish wedding liturgy. Here's the way the Jewish weddings worked in the first century. Uh, a young man wanted to marry, so he would tell his father, his parents, that he's ready to marry. So a father would arrange a marriage. And when the marriage was arranged, the young man would go to the father of the bride and would pay the bride price and would meet his new bride. He may not have known her. That's actually still common in many countries. Many of my Nepalese Indian and Indian students, they met their wife on the day they were engaged. That's when they met them the first time. And so um, he would meet his wife for the first time. Talk about trust in parents. It is trust in parents, right? I had a young, a young couple in India that had been married about three months, and they were so they're newlyweds, and they're students of mine, so I sat with them. They're, they're, they're very, very young, and I asked them, what makes the marriage, this marriage system work? And they smiled, and they said, we trust our parents. Huh. Aren't those good words? And I said, so you weren't married when you met each other? And they smiled, and they said, no. We know our parents would only do what's best for us. And I said, so how's it going? Oh, they just were just grinning from ear to ear at the excitement of being married. And so what would happen is the young man would come pay the bride price, and then he would say to, he, he paid for her, basically, a dowry, and he would say to her, uh, I'm going away, going to go prepare a place for us, a house, in my father's house. He would go back to where his family came from, to their house, and he would build a, an apartment or a house to live in, and it would traditionally take about a year, and then he would come back for her. She wasn't really quite sure what day he was coming back, which gives us some insight into the parables of Jesus about the wedding, when the brides were, uh, the bridesmaids were waiting for the bridegroom to come, right? Some of you have read that, and they didn't know when it was going to happen. He would show up one day with a smile and say, it's time. The Jewish wedding was uh, a very fun time it's not what we do today he would go and the wedding the wedding ceremony and feast and festival would take seven days when the festival was completed he would take his wife into the uh, bridal chamber and consummate the marriage physically while all of the wedding party and friends stood outside and waited when they were done they would come out and there would be lots of laughter and jumping up and down in joy what god had done he had done a great thing and the whole community and all the families would celebrate. It was a time of celebration. It's a time of personal, personal connection. It's a time of everybody's involved in this and seeing what God has done. And they would celebrate. And that's the language that he used here, that he uses. Uh, trust in God, trust also in me. By the way, when the, uh, when the young man uh, paid the bride price, she became betrothed. Isn't that a great word? Betrothed. It's very different. It's, it's more rich than our word engaged because it was a legal binding contract. She was now legally his wife from that moment on, even though it had not been consummated. 
If you go back and look at the Old Testament laws on how to treat women, the laws are very different if you treat uh, a betrothed woman versus a virgin, a non-betrothed virgin. The consequences are very different if you abuse them because she's now legally his wife. No one could touch her. And so she had confidence in him. He said, I'm going away, but I will come back for you. You don't have to worry. That's the imagery that Jesus uses here. But then he modifies this a little bit. Um, by the way, before we get into that, you, you know, you'll see that the disciples all throughout here are going, they're kind of scratching their heads trying to make sense of all this. Peter had just said in chapter 13, Lord, where are you going? In chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Because he had just said, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Philip in verse 8 said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. In verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? So you could see there's four different disciples all scratching their head. They're trying to make sense of this, what are you talking about language? We thought you were the king. You're going away? Huh? You want us to wash other people's feet? You want us to serve? All of this is brand new. Even though he told them he was going to die, they haven't made sense of all of it yet. That doesn't come until after he's glorified that they're able to make sense of it. So let's look at what he is saying as we weave our way through this passage. The first thing is that he is going to the Father to prepare a place for us. The word, plenty of room in my Father's house are many mansions, the old language. There is plenty of room in my Father's house. It's a very hard word to translate. It's a noun that comes from the word to abide or to remain. In John 15, um, when he says, I am the true vine, if you abide in me or remain in me, I will remain in you. Okay, there's the verb for that form. It has to do with the relationship. And um, so, in fact, on Friday, on Good Friday, we're going to talk about that very passage, that very section. I am the true vine. Remain in me. On Monday, Thursday, we're going to celebrate communion together. And if you are inclined, would like to, we will make it available to do a foot washing ceremony. For those of you that have never done it, I'd like to encourage you to come. You will enjoy it. It's a different experience. Okay, so foot washing on Thursday to symbolize John thir uh, 13. And then I am the true vine to, to talk about John 15. So he uses this word, plenty of room, uh, many mansions, that sort of thing. It's very important in the story. How do you take the word to abide and turn it into a noun? In my father's house, there are many abidings. See how challenging it is? Because it does mean structure a place but it's far richer than that it's not just any dwelling it is a life-giving dwelling because it's a place where you go where relationship is rich and real and genuine and life-giving that's what's behind the word to abide or to remain with somebody so he's saying in my father's house there's room for all of you all of you and it'll be very life-giving It'll be life-giving. He's going to prepare for them a permanent place that's characterized by abiding communion with the Father. This is the background to John 15, I am the true vine. We'll talk about that later. But secondly, somehow he's going to remain with them. Look in verse 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So, this is really clumsy grammar, if I can use that language here. He does what is done other places in Scripture in that he combines a present tense with a future tense. 
He says, I am coming again. He's describing it right now. I am coming. And then in the future, I will take you with me. You know, Paul uses that in Philippians 2 when he says the great passage on Christ. Although he exists in the very nature of God, present tense, he took on the form of a human. That's a point in time. He combines this, and Jesus does the same thing right here. It's a great way to communicate something unusual, something different. This is, uh, this is not an ordinary departure. This is not an ordinary departure. He's going away, and we can't go, but he's going to come back, but he is coming back right now. In fact, that's what, he's, that's, what, that's what Matthew recorded him saying in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Lo, I am with you always, even though he's leaving? He's with us. I don't understand it. All I can tell you is that it's not an ordinary departure. He's trying to communicate to them that even though I'm going away, I'm still present. I'm still with you. Third, we can follow him. Verse 4, you know the way to the place where I am going. So Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? We don't even know where you're going. Jesus answered, I am the way. I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Although it is by faith, I understand that, if you follow Jesus, the way does become clear. That's what Jesus is saying. So Thomas reveals that they are unsure of what he's talking about. So Jesus answers with a famous statement. His basic affirmation is that he is the way. The following two words of truth and life describe that this way occurs through truth and life. So hang in there with me just for a moment, and hopefully it'll become clear. Some of your translations even give the option, I am the way, even the truth and the life. The overarching statement, the most profound statement, is Jesus says, I am the way. You want to find this one true living God? You have to come after me. You have to believe in me. When you do that, truth and life, they become the method, if you will, of how you discover this way. In fact, at the very beginning of John, you see both these words occur in John 1, 4. In him, we now know that's Christ, in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The fact that we have been given life shows us to be a light. The world looks at us because we have life. And we know how to give life to others, don't we? Our church should be a life-giving place. If an unbeliever walks in, this is where they should walk in and say, wow, I've never met a place with this much life before. And then a little bit later in verse 14, he said, the word became flesh, again, this is Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's the second word, truth. Jesus brings truth. Or in verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this truth, this ability to make sense of a dark world, a broken world, comes because of Jesus. But it starts by faith. Okay? As an unbeliever, you remember, some of you remember what it was like. Some of you, it's a little too far in the past. I get that. I'm one of those. <laughs> but you remember what it was like being in a dark room and you couldn't make sense of all of it. How in the world does this Christianity make sense? By faith, you step into the dark room and the light comes on. You're given life and therefore truth. 
we can make sense. But the way into that dark room is through belief in Jesus. I am the way. His claim to be the way, it leads somewhere. This is unique among world religions. His claim to be the way leads us to the one, to the one true living God. It doesn't come by following Allah, Buddha, any other religions. It comes by following Jesus. When you place your faith in Jesus, you are given life and truth. Okay? So I am the way. Well then, fourth, when one turns to Jesus and experiences him, that person has now entered into the very presence of God. Look what he says in verse 7. If you have really known me, then you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. Why? Because you know me. That's what he's saying to the disciples. You do know my Father. That's why you know the way. You just haven't seen it quite yet. But you will. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Think of John 1.18, the very beginning of this book. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten one, the Son who is himself God, he reveals him. Again, nothing like that in any world religion. God became one of us. That's what's behind the term Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. God with us. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Faith. When you turn to Christ, you have stepped onto the road, the way. You are given life and truth, and it begins to make sense to you. The problem with the disciples is their lack of faith at this point. It's not until after the resurrection that they believe. But when they do believe, they stepped onto that way, that road. Is that your problem, by the way? Lack of faith? It's worth thinking about. Jesus goes on and adds one more statement. His departure is what makes it possible for the, work, for the believer to, to demonstrate even greater works than Jesus did. Verse 12, very truly I tell you, all who have faith in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. It's amazing to think that we will do greater works in Christ. Look at the story of the apostles after Jesus left. Can you think of anything that Jesus did that they did not do? They read people's minds. They raised people from the dead. They healed the sick. They did all that. The only thing that Christ did that I can think of that the apostles did not do was atone for sin. Everything else in life that he did, they did even greater works than he. What a servant. Would we ever script it that way? God said, I'm going to become like you. And then I'm going to die for you. And then I'm going to make it possible for you to do greater works than I've done. 
can't make this stuff up. No other religion teaches this. Have you found the way? Is your faith sufficient to believe in Jesus and experience the Father? Or better yet, is your faith sufficient to reveal even greater works in your own life? Stepping onto that road of belief is like stepping into a dark room. You take the first step. In fact, our bathrooms have this. You step into the room and the lights automatically come on. I think that's what it's like turning to the Lord. For those of you that might be here that don't know the Lord, it really is stepping out in faith. You step into a dark room and the light comes on. You're given life and you're given truth. It now begins to make sense. And by the way, for those of you that do follow Christ, you are the first glimpse of that light. That's you. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for... Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself by becoming a human and then allowing us the privilege of doing even greater works than you did. That's still amazing to me. Father, help us as a church to love well, to lead well. Father, to reflect your love and sacrifice to others. We pray these things in your your name, Jesus, because we believe in you. Amen. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. And let me just say thank you. Thanks again. You hear me say it over and over again for your generosity. You're the ones that take good care of our church and make it possible for us to do this. Thank you. I'm going to invite those that are going to serve us communion and pray to come on up and help us get ready for that. Communion, such a great story. There's a, there's a debate in Christianity about whether this is a sacrament or an ordinance. Depending on your background, you probably have an answer to that. Ordinance means it represents something. 
sacrament means we experience grace through it. Why can't it be both? Why can't it symbolize something as wonderful as the work of Christ to show us the way and at the same time be a means by which we as a community come together and experience grace in new and refreshing ways? I think it's both. That's what I think. For those of you, if you're, if you're here and, and you're not sure where you stand with Christ, pay attention. Watch us when we come up and share in this event together. We're commemorating what Christ did. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do you see how personal that is? Boy, it doesn't get more personal than Jesus saying, to the, to the 11, this is my body, which is for you. Each of you, do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup, this cup represents the new covenant. What was the new covenant? It was the hope, the future hope of Israel, that he would take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He would send his spirit to live with us. Is it getting more personal than that? God sends his son to become a human and he sends his spirit to live within us. It's about as personal as it gets. And he did that for each of us. So if you don't know Christ, then watch. We believe. That's why we do this. I'm going to invite you to come forward and uh, receive communion. By the way, if you are gluten intolerant, come to either of these two right here and we have gluten free. Okay? While you're up here, stop and pray. Um, There's one over there. Somebody come over here and pray with people if they want to. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time to celebrate the work of your son, his death. Jesus, thank you. It's just mind-boggling that you would come to earth and become one of us specifically to die in our place. Thank you for that. We love you. We honor you. And most importantly, we believe in you. Amen. Come and celebrate communion.